0: Tony D'Amino here, and welcome to our inaugural edition of the Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast. Here at the Legal Entrepreneurs Organization, we cater to law students interested in the business of law, in starting their own practice, or simply selling the best version of themselves. On this show, I'll be interviewing authors and lawyers who have embraced entrepreneurship in their lives. They'll be giving their unique insight into their stories, their practice, and their advice to law students and young lawyers. So that's the goal of the show, and I'm looking forward to it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the first episode of Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast. So you're a law student thinking about how you want to begin your career and not knowing what lies in store. Or you're a young lawyer who may be feeling like a square peg in a round hole. You may be even asking if law is the right career for you. Well, my guest today has had anything but a predictable career path. His name is Pulat Unisov, and he's the founder and principal of Unisov Law Professional Corporation, a boutique commercial litigation firm. Today, he'll be giving his insight on the risks, obstacles, and rewards of being a sole practitioner and advice on finding fulfillment as a lawyer. He'll also be talking about how law students and young lawyers can stand out in a competitive marketplace, what legal tech and blockchain may spell for the practice of law, and even what engineers can teach lawyers about finding happiness and balance. Pulat joins me now. Pulat Unisov, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Pulat, you're the founder of Unisov Law Professional Corporation. It's a commercial litigation firm in Toronto. Let's start off with your fir- what your firm does and the type of clients it helps. It's a small firm. It's just me and people, uh,
1: some people who work with me. I'm uh, looking into um, uh, hiring another lawyer but uh, so far it's been just me uh, the only lawyer and uh, it's been that way for almost seven years I started in 2011 and uh, I started as uh, a uh, do any kind of litigation practice and by now My uh, ideal client is a business with uh, probably under 10 million dollars in sales a year. My ideal file is um, a million dollars or less and um, my files usually have to do with some kind of breakdown in commercial relationships or transactions uh, or some kind of property damage or insurance claim. But I don't do personal injury
0: um, and insurance files are not a big part of my practice. Interesting. Okay, so part of our goal here at Leo is to help educate and inspire those law students who are interested in entrepreneurship. to, pers- to explore it at least in their career path could you talk a little bit about your background i know you were a computer programmer at one time I, I think you still do some coding um how has that informed your law practice thinking and you know like how did that how did you go from computer programming to just like going to law school and starting your own firm what inspired you to do that
1: I uh, always wanted to do my own thing. Uh, as far back as I can remember I, um, I was growing up uh, during the uh, uh, breakdown or breakup of the Soviet Union. This is where I'm originally from and uh, nothing was permanent. Everything was changing and things that seemed like they would be around forever. They were um, disappearing uh, in front of me and jobs were not uh, available anymore as I was growing up or different jobs became available. Uh, Entrepreneurship uh, was possible for for, for the first time, at least officially. It's funny, but in some ways it's similar to what The West is going through now because jobs are becoming less important and uh, being your own boss or freelancing is becoming more common. It's not as dramatic or painful as the breakup and collapse of the Soviet Union, but uh, there are some parallels. So that influenced me, and uh, I had different gigs during my professional life, uh, you know, on, in, in, uh, uh, in both hemispheres. But um, when I came to uh, Toronto uh, 18 years ago, I uh, became a computer programmer. I was a computer programmer, software developer for seven years. I always wanted to be a computer programmer. I coded as a, uh, you know, when I was in high school and uh, even as I was studying my undergrad, which was international relations, I was also coding. So it was a great time to be a coder. Uh, Early 90s um, and then the rest of the 90s and um, you know, in the following decade it was also great, despite all the uh, crises and all the uh, uh, market crashes, despite all of that, it was always great to be coding computers because the computer um, uh, era has arrived, or had arrived at the time, so I was a computer programmer for seven years, uh, also doing my own gigs, having my own uh, consulting practice. Uh, or working uh, in-house for some of these years. And then uh, at some point I wanted to, I guess, look into law. And uh, I went to law school, went to Osgood, Spent three years in Osgood and I uh, wasn't really sure um, still how law practice and this whole law business worked. And uh, I totally didn't feel like working in the law firm, didn't feel like it was for me. And uh, I was a big fan of the engineering philosophy, engineering uh, approach to doing things when, and also the uh, startup movement was taking off. So I really believed in starting with a minimal minimal kernel and then taking it from there. So I thought, Okay, I have this license from the Law Society, I, I have my uh, insurance from Law Pro. In theory, I'm a lawyer, if I want to be a lawyer in practice, all I need to do is get one client. If you have one client, assuming you have insurance and license, you're a lawyer now. Uh, and uh, I got my first paying client very quickly, I think I put an ad on Craigslist or something, and. Uh, I got my first small claims file. So if you want to get started in litigation, really look at the small claims court. It's the busiest court in Ontario and there's huge demand for legal services there. You're not going to make a lot of money, but it's a great experience, amazing experience. So and then, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've been doing that for a year or two and Slowly I uh, narrowed my focus. I got more spirit court files, larger files, better clients. I always wanted to get bigger files and um, more uh, corporate or more business-oriented clients because that's what I was interested in. And if you keep this focus, you're going to get there. If you really want something and uh, if you... Screen your files incoming files Based on what you want eventually your practice is going to start looking like what you want it to look like not Some random profile, but the profile that you choose for your practice so by now I Have amazing clients. I have really interesting files mostly to to do with things that I described earlier
0: Um, And this is how I got here Oh. Well, I guess, I mean, you have certain traits that entrepreneurship favors, and it's no secret that starting your own business, even as a highly educated professional, can be difficult and risky. So, what are the obstacles that you face starting your firm, to name a few, and, and what aspects continue to be a challenge?
1: Well the biggest obstacle is initial capital even though this is a great business because it doesn't require you to buy expensive machinery or get a long-term lease or hire a lot of people you don't need to do all these things those are uh, probably the biggest sources of of capital uh, needs a new business has and they're not really necessary when you start a litigation law practice. You just need yourself um, and uh, you don't even need an office when you start a law practice nowadays. But you still need some capital in the beginning and mostly to pay for your groceries and rent or mortgage. Right, and those things are not cheap in the city so when you start don't expect to make a lot of money don't expect to make any significant amount of money in the first year if you are intent on uh, uh, building a commercial litigation practice the thing about commercial litigation is, is that it's often a, a value practice versus a volume practice so there's not a lot of work to go around. There are not a lot of files necessarily to go around but there are some really great value high quality files out there. So you want to compete to get those files but you're not going to get those files in your first year unless you have an amazing referral network and wonderful friends and connections which I'm sure some of our listeners do because some people have this natural talent for building networks. But if if you don't have this uh, beautiful network right away, you you have to start, you have to build it, right? It's going to take time. So your first files are not going to be very valuable. Uh, If you open a personal injury practice, my guess, I never opened one, but my educated guess is if you invest enough money in marketing and advertising, you're going to start getting enough volume. So that's where you actually need a lot of capital up front, right, and also to pay for all of those expert reports. But with commercial litigation, when you want to build a practice doing handmade custom work for a small number of excellent
0: clients, it's going to take time to build that network. And that's what you mean by value, I guess, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that concept. Um, What do you mean by value versus volume practice? Yes, that's
1: what I mean by value. Uh, And uh, uh, specifically, you can get your revenue from doing many files, many smaller files, or you can get your revenue from doing fewer bigger files or few bigger files. So... The size of the file or the ability of the file to generate your fees is what I call value. So some files in personal injury work, again, I'm not an insider. It's only superficial knowledge. You know, let let the listeners send an angry letter to the editor if I'm wrong. But as far as I know, in personal injury, most files are small and they survive because of one or two gigantic files that every once they get, right? But they do this huge volume that requires uh, a great overhead, that requires staff, that requires attention, that, requires, uh, that involves all kinds of collateral things. Because the more clients you have, the more headache you have collateral. You're just increasing likelihood of difficult clients um, uh, prop, you know, uh, uh, popping in and things like that. But when you do a value practice or value-based practices, you're looking to have as few clients as possible actually, um, but you want each client to be amazing and excellent and you want each file to generate a great, a great amount of fees. And the client on that file still be happy, right? You still want that client to be happy to be, to be paying mm-hmm. that, that amount of money, yeah, right? You really want your client to be happy to pay you tens of thousands of dollars a year in fees mm-hmm. because that's the, that's the stakes in commercial litigation and that's the uh, difference that you as a lawyer on this file m- uh, make. And a lot of clients out there are totally, perfectly willing to pay large fees to good commercial litigators because the stakes are high. And um, matters are complex. So you want to, it's a range. It's a range between volume and, and value. It doesn't mean one is bad or the other one is good. It, it's really uh, up to you which one you want to go for. I think you can make more money in personal injury in theory, right? You can just ramp up volume, you
0: can hire more staff. Commercial litigation is a little bit different. Although maybe that's changing with the potential advent <coughs> of self-driving cars, right? With uh, Yeah. It might not be for a while. Uh, yeah, I, um, I,
1: I hear you, I, I remember talking about this on the internet somewhere, that uh, uh, once all cars are self-driving cars are we going to have MVAs anymore, motor vehicle accidents, right? Right. right. And are uh, those few motor vehicle accidents that um, do remain, are they going to be product liability claims rather than um, uh, driver liability claims,
0: right? So that's an interesting question. So... I guess, in short, we've looked at the obstacles, but now let's get in maybe to the rewards a bit. What's your favorite part about what you do, and why does, how does making being an entrepreneur make you enjoy your work more than you otherwise would?
1: I don't want to say that uh, I have everything under control, that yeah. I have figured everything out in life. No, far from it. Um, I don't want to say that I'm... Uh, Um, where I want to be but I'm very I'm I'm close I think I'm closer to where I want to be than a lot of people and uh, I owe that to uh, having my own practice why because number one is control and flexibility I don't know what FaceTime is nobody watches me um, come in and get out of the office Mm -hmm. I have an office but If I want to work out of a coffee shop, I can. If I want to work out of a completely different city, I can, right? Uh, And nothing stops me from working out of a completely different city because everything is electronic. And people who work with me, they are connecting to me electronically. I don't need them to be around me necessarily. So this flexibility and control are amazing and they permit creativity, they free up time for side projects, Um, they, I think they create this elusive work-life balance for me, I don't want (laughs) to boast, but um, it's not bad here, so if you want to work 12-16 hour days, you will work 12, 16-hour days even if you have your own practice. I guess, especially if you have volume practice, because volume practice requires a lot more business management. Right? But if you don't want to work 12, 16-hour days, you have a lot more um, room and choice to, to avoid that those long hours when you have your own practice. And still, and still be comfortable financially. You know, I don't think that financially, I'm um, far from uh, an associate in a big firm who's working 16
0: hour days. Mm. I don't think so at all. Great. So that links up to the, this next topic, which is finding fulfillment as a lawyer. Um, So back in 2015 you wrote an article on the Medium called How to Be a Happy Lawyer and I found this interesting as I mean it applies to current lawyers but it can also help law students like me and our viewers sort of create this vision of, of the life that we want and you know who knows maybe even questions if law is right for us. So if My understanding is correct. The thesis of the article is to be a happy lawyer, you need uh, these terms called scalability and determinism. So uh, let's start with scalability. What is it and how have you used it to your benefit?
1: Scalability is being able to work harder when needed let's say somebody brings an urgent motion without notice or with very short notice and you have to respond to it on very short notice so you suddenly have to put in 10 20 hours in the span of two three days or something like that if you're scalable it's not gonna break your back. Mm -hmm. You're gonna do it, I mean, you're not gonna necessarily enjoy it because uh, last minute things are always stressful, but you're gonna do it and you're gonna do a decent job because you will deploy capacity that had been lying dormant or idle. Essentially, being scalable is having this capacity that you can deploy at will to suddenly become a more powerful uh, law firm. You're still a one-man shop, but there are different techniques you can use to do the work of a uh, five-lawyer shop on demand. You don't necessarily uh, want to um, experience these dramatic peaks often because if it happens often perhaps just become a five lawyer firm right hire more lawyers but um you should be able to handle occasional peaks and when 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 you're scalable you can and if you're not scalable maybe you can once and then the second time you're going to get a drinking problem the third time you're gonna yeah you know leave the practice of law stuff like that right so how do you become scalable well i guess don't work 16 hour days cuz when you work 16 hour days if all of these 16 hours every day are filled with work that are just that that is just routine that is just planned and something unplanned comes along what are you going to do you're going to work a 23 hour day it's not great right it's not great and um everybody's situation is different but this is my thesis you need to have some spare capacity don't work at a hundred percent all the time it's unhealthy and it's also not uh, a good doesn't make good business sense and it's not fair to your clients remember we don't do it just for ourselves or our families we have to protect best inter- interests of our clients And taking care of yourself and taking care of your capacity and scale, I think it's uh, an essential element of taking care of your client and protecting your client's best interests.
0: So that's scalability. Awesome. So how about determinism? What is it? How have you used it to your benefit?
1: I borrowed both terms from software engineering. I heard uh, these terms first in my computer programming work. And determinism uh, comes directly from one of my great influences. Uh, uh, my, my one of my former bo- well, one of the few former bosses. I didn't really. I haven't really had a lot of bosses in life. So he's one of three maybe that I had, and uh, he was a great influence on me. And determinism is basically uh, what machines give us we know we know exactly uh, what the machine will do when a machine uh, steps away from the program that's called a bug and then we call in tech support right so when you tap your transit card presto card in this city it's called Presto right and you tap it on the uh, subway gate, the gate will open. That's determinism. You want determinism in uh, the practice of law because lack of determinism leads to anxiety because you don't know or you're not sure what's going to happen. It leads to bad choices it leads to mistakes. Unfortunately, we can't have complete determinism in the practice of law. You know, it's really
0: um, unpredictable.
1: It's it's not necessarily unpredictable, but but you know, every lawyer at some point has heard the you know a judge or someone of that caliber say. No cases open and shut, right? You never know for sure what the judge is going to decide, right? I mean, right. every lawyer heard that. I mean, also, all lawyers who practiced enough time know that they can, with great certainty, predict outcomes a lot of the time, but not the whole time, right? So, what you want to do is you want to increase. The amount uh, or the number of occasions on which you can predict outcomes with some certainty. Otherwise, what's your value to the client? Because clients want to know uh, your uh, opinion about the future. That's what clients really uh, want to get from us. They want to know what's going to happen or what's not going to happen, right? And lawyers hedge and lawyers qualify the answers because they also protect themselves, quote-unquote, right, and things like that. But often it's simple because they don't know. So develop tools, techniques, and protocols for calculating outcomes or being as near to calculating outcomes as possible. So know your way around legal research. It really starts at the bottom. Um, There are some amazing legal research tools, especially now the so-called AI, uh, also known as machine learning, is improving that a lot, right? So um, it's fairly straightforward to give answers to a lot of questions of law, right? What's, what's, what makes things difficult is uh, applying a lot of facts and um, the facts of your particular case. Often because uh, the facts of your case are different from the case law. Or because the, your source of facts is not perfect. You know, a lot of lawyers will, will know this. You think that these are the facts of your case and then shortly before the trial you find out, oh no, uh, the witness was wrong and that's not what they're going to say, right? Or the document was not from uh, a good source or something like that, right? So, that's where the reality of clean law comes uh, across the the, the, the dirty facts of life, basically, right? Life is not clean. Law is trying to be clean. That's another word for deterministic. Law really wants to be deterministic. But life is not so clean so it's really hard but that's what people pay that's what clients pay lawyers They clients want determinism they want some certainty so it's really important to have great um, protocols for answering questions of law and also uh, uh, strong investigative uh, skills and strong mm-hmm. fact screening evidence
0: screening data fact vetting skills it's really important so you touched on ai there for a bit and i mean if you just turn on the television everybody's talking about it blockchain bitcoin crypto Um, so one of your i guess specialties and areas of interest is how law practice is changing and how technology is affecting that change so we're going to get into blockchain a little little later on but um, what changes have you witnessed in the practice of law and what changes do you think lie in store for new lawyers the
1: biggest change that i've seen is young lawyers being able to start their practice practices uh, more often right out of the law school and being able to take on established law firms with a lot of resources and be successful. This is the biggest change I've seen. And I think it's much more important, much bigger than any of this glamorous AI or, or blockchain uh, or legal tech uh, changes that people like to talk about. We haven't really seen uh, legal tech fulfill its promise yet. But I have already seen uh, this influx, this advent of young lawyers, not necessarily young in age, but young in seniority, uh, sometimes fresh out of law school, who do decent work, who make legal services available to people who would never ever even hope to uh, access legal services. And, and uh, I see these young lawyers Take on established firms with lots of resources and uh, do it successfully. Because at the end of the day, the beauty of our system is that we have amazing judges. Wow! All right, yeah, amazing judges who can see beyond reputation, beyond the cachet, beyond um, uh, you know the the our, our money suit. Although we don't have our money suits in the spirit court courtrooms, we have robes. But still, so judges, they really, uh, in my experience, do a great job as long as you bring the case to them properly. And uh, it, wasn't really, it wasn't really possible to the same extent before the advent of the internet, before um, the paperless office. Because before paperless office you had to get a lease you had to get some your, your filing cabinet somewhere and your filing cabinet was always growing because you didn't scan things you know you, you didn't have email as much right and uh, just the sheer space was a, was a cost We're going back to capital right so and you need, you needed a system to handle all the paperwork so staff lease right? it was hard to um, start your own practice early on before, much harder than now. And I see all these young lawyers do it now successfully and it's great. It's a really underrated trend Mm -hmm. that not enough people talk about. This is what we should be talking Mm -hmm. about and we also should be helping these young lawyers start their practices and um, fulfill all these great societal objectives like access to justice in addition to supporting themselves.
0: Hmm. That's awesome. Um, so, I want to get into an article you wrote on s and Denise Law. Slaw, that's right. Slaw.ca. Yeah. SLA. Slaw, SLA. okay. The biggest
1: legal public online
0: publication <laughs> in Canada, as far as I know. Okay, uh, great. So, uh, yeah, it's called. What is blockchain? Why is it important for law practice? So, for those law students, for those people who don't have an idea of what it is, what is blockchain? Um, and you know, what is cryptocurrency? Is the basic idea of it. I wonder
1: if a lot of listeners heard of BitTorrent. It's this program. I mean, I'm really um, simplifying here. Okay, so tech people will forgive me for this. It's this program, you download it, and then you can go to some shady website, and you can download movies and music with this program. And it's like this program gives you access to a bunch of files online and uh, I think a lot of these files, I'm not sure I I haven't tried it myself but I think a lot of these files are illegal downloads, right? Right. uh, I've definitely heard of the um, media industry, Hollywood, going after downloaders or illegal downloaders but they can't shut it down They can't shut it down. It's flourishing, right? So people like me are not going to bother with this just because it's much easier to just reach for the Apple TV remote and just click through or uh, tap through, buy, rent, or whatever. And who cares, like two bucks, four bucks. I'm not going to go search shady websites. But why am I talking about this? So the question is, why is this powerful industry, the entertainment industry, Hollywood, uh, law enforcement. Why can't they shut down these networks? Because these networks are spread across thousands and thousands of individual home or work computers. These networks have been pieces and bits and pieces of data on all of these computers and then they're capable intelligently of collecting these bits and pieces into files that people uh, look for media files movies music whatever by the way a lot of legit stuff is on those networks like you will uh, be able to get um, install DVDs for Linux on those networks and things like that very large files can be downloaded from those networks so nobody can shut them down because they're spread out there is no central server like a, in a data center, or Google or Amazon data center, where you can go to Amazon and Amazon will shut it down, Google will shut it down. No, it's spread out across thousands of machines and even if a third of these machines tr- go, you know, go off, it's not gonna affect the result. The files are still gonna be spread over a sufficient number of machines to be available and uh, to be able to maintain this network. Data exchange network that doesn't depend on a central server. So that's BitTorrent P2P peer-to-peer network. Now uh, Bitcoin is like BitTorrent but for money or for value more generally speaking. Again it's a network spread uh, across thousands of machines thousands of computers and uh, This network, instead of keeping track of uh, video files, audio files, allowing people to download them, this network keeps track of who has how much and who gives how much to whom. And you may be wondering, you can't call this money, it's not dollars, it's just Bitcoin, it's like fake money or monopoly money. Right? But um, just hold on a second, okay? Hold on a second. Let's first agree that this network is capable of keeping track of Bitcoins. And let's first make sure our listeners understand the technological feat, this achievement of being able to have this distributed mind, like a hive mind which cannot be shut down by anybody. You have to literally find each and every individual computer uh, among thousands and shut each one down to shut down this network and nobody's been able to do it with BitTorrent. Mm. We have uh, really good evidence suggesting that it's impossible. So. Understand this technological achievement first, a distributed P2P network that keeps track of who has how much money and who paid how much money to whom. Understand this first. And then secondly, understand why Bitcoin is valuable to those people on this network. So Bitcoin is valuable for Many of the same reasons that gold is valuable to people. It's valuable because it's rare and durable.
0: Versus fiat currency, essentially.
1: Well, fiat is also valuable. I'm not going to say no if you give me a thousand dollars right now, right? I'm not going to say no, okay? Uh, For the record. Uh, I'm not getting paid for this <laughs> podcast, just so everybody knows this. But um, have you heard of um, Zimbabwe? Mm. I think they have trillion-dollar uh, banknotes, or something like that. Or even when I was growing up in the Soviet Union, mm. I, I, I think we had hyperinflation. Why that happened? Because the government was printing money like crazy. So in Zimbabwe government was printing money to cover its debts. In the Soviet Union the same thing happened after the collapse. And it happened also in Germany before the Second World War. It has happened many times to many countries in the past. Governments start printing money. Uh, Humanity learned this lesson generally and uh, tries to keep Central banks, independent of the government, right? Because in modern economic systems, central banks print money and governments cannot tell them to print money, right? At least in Canada, and in, in the United States, this is the system. The government cannot tell Bank of Canada, okay, print, print $100 billion. They can't do that. But in other countries, it was possible, and it sometimes resulted in governments printing money like crazy. So the rarity, the rarity condition of money was violated. Once something is not rare, it's less valuable or not valuable, right? So another thing is durable. Why is gold? valuable? Why are people into gold? Why is gold so expensive? And also, why has gold multiplied its value relative to national currencies such as US dollar, Canadian dollar, uh, Deutsche Mark before the euro? Why has gold multiplied its value over the past several decades compared to these currencies? Because Gold provide a natural guarantee that it's rare and durable. It's durable because of its physical properties and it's rare because the history of humanity has shown that it's really hard to find gold, right? So people are relatively secure in their belief that nobody will suddenly flood the world with, with gold bars, right? So if you get bar of gold, you're relatively secure that this is going to be as rare as it is and that it's not going to rust, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to lose its physical properties. It's a durable, rare metal. Another thing about gold, it's relatively easy to um, exchange gold, right? Even though it's heavy, it's, you know because it's valuable one gold bar it's not so hard to move it around also creative people came up with different ways of not moving gold at all but just moving paperwork um, recording your right to gold right Um, another thing is it's really easy to um, create standard Points. Bits or pieces of gold in the form of coins or gold bars, so you can sort of cre- create units of account easily, right? So remember the necessary properties of money, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. And gold can uh, fulfill all of these properties and that's why it has value,
0: also because it's rare and durable. For Gu- for you uh, philosophy majors out there, if you recall your Aristotle, uh, that's one of the things he said, right? Medium exchange and store of value. Um, great. So, I mean, how does is, is this all affect? I guess at the end of the day, we're law students and there's lawyers listening, and we have a lawyer um, guest here today. So, what does it mean for traditional legal services? Um, you said in your article, lawyers can now folk hopefully they can be able to focus increasingly on truly controversial cases that advance the law. Can you unpack that a bit for our viewers? Yes. So, Bitcoin
1: is like digital gold and it's supported by this decentralized distributed network that intelligently keeps track of who owns how much Bitcoin and who paid how much Bitcoin to whom. This network guarantees integrity of Bitcoin records because it's a decentralized distributed blockchain. That's what decentralized distributed blockchains do. Remember, nobody can shut it down. It cannot go out of business. It exists outside of the normal traditional corporate structures if a decentralized, distributed blockchain can securely keep track of Bitcoin records, in theory, it could keep track and register records of anything. So the technology underlying blockchain or Bitcoin allows to keep track keep track of records independently of any government any party any corporation any vendor it doesn't matter if somebody goes out of business it doesn't matter if government shuts anybody down the data on the blockchain lives on right so that's where uh, the value for law practice comes in It has to do with evidence and it has to do with determinism again because when you have a secure, reliable source of information about the world, you will have fewer disputes about stupid things like, did I sign that? Did I borrow $500 or $5,000? Litigators will know how many disputes are really stupid because people didn't write (laughs) things down properly. So blockchain promises to take care of this huge chunk of disputes that are really stupid and then that will uh, free up lawyer's capacity to focus on things that are genuinely in dispute um, that mostly have to do with uh, unwritten things. um, The relationship of a citizen with the government, right, Mm -hmm. or uh, novel cases where it's doesn't really matter what's written. It's just that the site doesn't know how to uh, interpret what's written or what rule to apply to it, right? So things like that. Remember, you used to read appellate cases in law school? Most litigators never touch appeals, despite what you read in law school. But, you know, if there are fewer disputes over silly things, maybe more lawyers will focus on truly novel disputes that uh, go to the root of what the law should be.
0: Wow, that's, that's interesting. So, let's wrap up here. Um, how do you think law graduates, you know, we all know that law schools are pumping up graduate, pumping out graduates, and there might even be a new law school here in Toronto. At Ryerson, Um, so how can law graduates make themselves, knowing all these things, I guess. How how do you think that they can make themselves a little more marketable to this changing landscape, and you know more uh, increase their potential for uh, fulfillment in uh, in this career?
1: Well, you gotta decide if you're a hustler or not, uh, or you're not a hustler, right? Are you comfortable uh, networking? Are you comfortable? um thinking about markets and who your client is and things like that or or do you only want to do legal research and drafting and things like that right and uh, if you're a hustler if you know how to get business how to get clients start something i'm serious so really start something don't think about uh, job search necessarily, just start something. We all need to get articling, I think, still. Uh, But beyond that, just start something. Like I said, law pro, law society, one client and you're a lawyer, right? So try one client. Um, There are a lot of materials in the great library. Uh, Sign up for high quality legal database. Don't try to save money on that and start something. If you're not a closer, if you don't really want to go after clients, if you want to if you don't like selling, if you don't like marketing yourself, then think about partnering up with someone who who does so you can complement each other. So someone can drum up business and you can do the legal work, right? And you can start thinking about it really early on. Don't don't accept old patterns and contentions. If you are determined to follow the Law School, OCI, Big Firm path, and if you can, sure, go for it. I haven't worked in a big firm. I can't give you any inside info, but I'm sure you know what it's like. So, if you're still comfortable, go for it. It's definitely for some people and I have A lot of respect for a lot of lawyers from big firms. They do great work. And also, if you want to work on massive things, institutions, big companies, they will not hire uh, small um, firms for many things. For some, they will. So that's your path. That's fine. But if you want to try other things, don't be afraid to start. Um, Don't feel like you have to find that law firm job. Get your license, get your law pro, and um, think about designing your law practice, build some kind of platform, some kind of pro- protocol workflow, set up for your uh, law practice, make it minimal, start small, get one client, and just try it. If it doesn't work out, find a job.
0: Pull out yourself. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, that wraps up our first edition of the Legal Entrepreneur's Podcast. You can find more info on Poulat and his work on Twitter, SLAW, that's S-L-A-W, and the Law is Cool website. If you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you left a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn. Please share the show with a friend or colleague who you think would get something out of it. As always... Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Tony D'Amino telling you to dare to roar.